Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Human and Hungry. It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 10th, 2019, the first Sunday in Lent. God hates nothing God has made. Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. These are the words my priest will say to me as I begin my Lenten journey this week. As she marks my forehead with ashes, I'll contemplate a huge and bewildering paradox. I am beloved of God, and I will die. The first truth does not prevent the second. The second truth does not negate the first. In many ways, this is the same paradox Jesus wrestles with in our Gospel reading for the first week of Lent. At his baptism, Jesus enters the bottom-line truth about his identity— He is God's Son, precious and beloved. But when the Spirit leads him into the wilderness, he has to face some powerful assaults on that truth. He has to learn how to be the beloved in a bleak and lonely wasteland. He has to trust that he can be beloved and famished, beloved and insignificant, beloved and vulnerable at the same time. He has to learn that his belovedness resides within his flesh and blood humanity. To be beloved is not to transcend the other grimmer truth the truth of dust and ashes, he will die. The devil offers Jesus three opportunities to walk away from this essential lesson. As I reflect on each of them, I wonder how they might become invitations for us, invitations to trust God's love in the barren places of our own lives. The first temptation targets Jesus' hunger. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. The temptation implies that God's beloved should not be hungry. In the devil's economy, unmet desire is an unnecessary aberration, not an integral part of what it means to be human. In inviting Jesus to magically sate his hunger, the devil invites Jesus to deny the reality of the Incarnation, to cheat his way to satisfaction instead of waiting, paying attention to his hunger, and leaning into God for its lasting fulfillment. Along the way, the devil encourages Jesus to disrespect and manipulate creation for his own satisfaction to turn what is not meant to be eaten, a stone, into an object he can exploit, as if the stone has no intrinsic value, beauty, or goodness, apart from Jesus' willingness to possess and consume it. Many of us have given up something for Lent this year. Chocolate, wine, TV, Facebook. The goal is to sit with our hungers, our wants, our desires, and learn what they have to teach us. What is the hunger beneath the hunger? Can we hunger and still live? desire and still flourish, lack and still live generously without exploiting the beauty and abundance all around us? Who and where is God when we are famished for whatever it is we long for? Friendship, meaning, intimacy, a home, a savings account, a family. I write these words of trepidation because I know what it is to let hunger gnarl and embitter me. Hunger in and of itself is not a virtue, it's a classroom. To sit patiently with desire, To become its student and still embrace my identity as God's beloved is hard. It's very, very hard. But this is the invitation. We can be loved and hungry at the same time. We can hope and hurt at the same time. Most of all, we can trust that when God nourishes us, it won't be by magic. It won't be manipulative and disrespectful. It won't necessarily be the food we choose for ourselves, but it will feed us nevertheless. And through us, if we will learn to share, it will feed the world. The second temptation targets Jesus' ego. After showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, the devil promises him glory and authority. 
It will all be yours, the devil says. Fame, visibility, recognition, clout, a kingdom to end all kingdoms here and now. The implication is that God's beloved need not labor in obscurity. To be God's child is to be center stage, visible, applauded, admired, and envied. A God who really loves us will never abandon us to a modest life, lived in what the world considers insignificance. That Christians tend to have an uneasy relationship with power is an understatement. Church history is littered with the ugly fallout of Christian ambition, power, fame, and authority gone awry. So the question for us is whether we can embrace Jesus' version of significance, a significance born of humility and surrender. How important is it to us that we're noticed, praised, liked? Is our belief in God's love for us contingent on a definition of success that doesn't come from God at all? Can we trust that God sees us even when the powers that be do not? Can our lives as God's beloved ones thrive in quiet places, secret places, humble places? The uncomfortable truth about Christian power is that it resides in weakness. Jesus is lifted up, but he's lifted up on a cross. The third temptation targets Jesus' vulnerability. God will command his angels concerning you to protect you, the devil promises Jesus. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. The implication is that if we are beloved of God, then God will keep us safe, safe from physical and emotional harm, safe from frailty and disease, safe from accident, safe from death. It's such an enticing lie because it targets our deepest fears about what it means to be human in a broken, dangerous world. We want so much, so much, to believe that we can leverage our belovedness into an impenetrable shield, that we can get God to guarantee us swift and perfect rescues if we just believe hard enough. But no. If the cross teaches us anything, it teaches us that God's precious children still bleed, still ache, still die. We are loved in our vulnerability, not out of it. Three temptations, three invitations. What will we do with them? In some ways, Jesus' struggle in the wilderness brings the ancient story of human temptation full circle. Can you be like God, is the question the snake poses to Adam and Eve in the lushness of the first garden. Will you dare to know what God knows? In the wilderness, the devil offers Jesus a clever inversion of those primordial questions. Can you be fully human? Can you exercise restraint, abdicate power, accept danger? Can you bear what it means to be mortal? If those 40 days of the wilderness was a time of self-creation, a time for Jesus to decide who he was and how he would live out his calling, then here is what he chose. Emptiness over fullness, obscurity over honor, vulnerability over rescue. At every instance when Jesus could have reached for the magical, the glorious, and the safe, he reached instead for the mundane, the invisible, and the risky. The Gospel tells us that Jesus didn't choose to enter the wilderness, the Spirit led him there. But here's the kicker. Jesus chose to stay until the work of the wilderness was over. We don't always choose to enter wildernesses either. We don't volunteer for pain, loss, danger, or terror, but the wilderness happens. Whether it comes to us in the guise of a hospital waiting room, a thorny relationship, a troubled child, a sudden death, or a crippling panic attack, the wilderness appears, unbidden and unwelcome, at our doorsteps. It insists on itself. And sometimes, can we bear to ponder this? It is God's own spirit who drives us into the parched landscape amidst the wild beasts. Does this mean that God wills bad things to happen to us? That he wants us to suffer? I don't think so. Does it mean that God can redeem even the most barren periods of our lives if we choose to stay and pay attention? Does it mean that our deserts can become holy even as they remain dangerous? Yes. What does this mean for us as we begin our Lenten journeys this year? Maybe it means it's time to follow Jesus into the desert. 
It's time to stay and look evil in the face. Time to hear evil's voice, recognize its allure, and confess its appeal. It's time to decide who we are and whose we are. Remember, Lent is not a time to do penance for being human. It's a time to embrace all that it means to be human. Human and hungry. Human and vulnerable. Human and beloved. For books this week, Brad Keister reviews Marianne Wolfe's Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of Reading and the Brain. This book provides an overview of the science of reading and argues for the deep value that a society of readers enjoys. Marianne Wolfe, the John DiBaggio Professor of Citizenship and Public Service at Tufts University, was the director of the Tufts Center for Reading and Language Research. She currently directs the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice at UCLA and is working with the Dyslexia Center at the UCSF School of Medicine and with Curious Learning, a global literacy project which she co-founded. There has never been a time when the complex beauty of the reading process stood more revealed, says Wolfe, when the magnitude of its contributions was more clearly understood by science, or when these contributions seemed more in danger of being replaced by new forms of communication. Unlike other human activities, people are not born to read. In fact, written languages took several millennia to develop, and even now, each child must learn anew to gain the skills to read. Reading involves input from several centers of the brain, both left and right side, as they integrate the processing of visual images of the letters themselves, as well as what a word may represent, as well as the actual sound of the spoken language. In the language of neuroscience, neurons that fire together, wire together, in such a way that recognition of and understanding of a written text becomes almost automatic. Children thus learn to synthesize visual, phonological, and semantic aspects of the written word at lightning speed. As we get older, all of our experiences with words are folded in as well. For most adults, this processing of words in a printed page takes place in milliseconds. In a side comment that illustrates both the scale of information involved in learning to read as well as a relevant social issue, Wolf states that in some environments, the average young middle-class child hears 32 million more spoken words than the young underprivileged child by age five. Because reading is not a guaranteed human function, there are also dangers. First, Wolf notes that dyslexia has, become, has been seriously misunderstood until recently, precisely because its origins cannot be localized to one gene or one part of the brain. But contemporary advances have made it easier to find solutions and provide hope for those who have dyslexia which continues to carry a strong negative social stigma. Second, there is a danger that electronic communication and social media may serve to render written language superficial. These topics are further developed in Wolf's newest book, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World, and in many interviews available online. Wolf notes that in ancient Greece, Socrates expressed deep concerns about the development and use of written language, that written words were inflexible, that the existence of written documents would lead to loss of memory, why memorize, and that society would lose control over its language. Notwithstanding these objections, written language, with the aid of the printing press for its dissemination, has flourished since the time of Socrates. Indeed, Socrates might worry more in our present time that a precious commodity may be lost via its trivialization. For movies this week, Dan reviews Pick of the Litter. If you are a dog lover, or if you need a reliable choice for a family movie night, this movie is a sure bet. The 80-minute documentary follows a single litter of five Labrador Retriever puppies for about two years, from their whelping mother and birth, when they look like rats, to the entire evaluation and training process of becoming a guide dog for the blind. The public graduation ceremony, when the dogs are formally transferred to their new blind owners, is something to behold. 
And, not to say too much, but not all dogs reach this high bar of performance. Some will be career-changed. After birth, the dogs are given to puppy-raiser families for socialization and basic training. This is not a casual commitment, but a ton of time-consuming work, and not all puppy-raisers are up to their task. One dog had to be removed from its initial family and given to fixer puppy-raisers with more experience. You can well imagine what it feels like to return the puppy to the guide dog school after two years of all of that love, work, and bonding. It's truly remarkable and inspiring to watch how these dogs learn, work, and perform, like ignoring a treat that is waved in front of their nose because they must always be on task with their owner, or actually disobeying a command that they have been given because they see or sense a greater danger. Of course, these dogs are adorable, whether they pass or fail, but they are also amazing in what they do to lead a blind person through life. Bring Kleenex for tears that are both happy and sad. Dan, watch this movie on Amazon Streaming. And finally, for poetry for this first Sunday in Lent, Temptations by Brother Eckhart. Creature comforts, and why not? All you have to do is give up a few rocks. These sun-baked stones that burn your hands and cut your feet could soon become a desert treat. Stop being so hard on yourself. Fame, all yours for the taking. All you have to do is leave this lonely wilderness, head right to the center of the noisy crowd, drop in your branding clear and loud. Start showing what you've got. Power. Not as easy, but well within your reach. All you have to do is want it more than anything. Make it your top priority, your one and only deity, instead of your strange, silly god of suffering, solitude, and silence. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 10th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.